Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are well into a study of John. We're in the verse, third verse this morning, so we're, we're making some good progress here. Um, when Yeshua came to Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples the most important question of all. He said to them, Who do you say that I am? That's the most important question you can be asked. Who do you say Yeshua is? Mormons will answer this question by saying Yeshua is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Jehovah's Witness answered by saying that Yeshua is the archangel. He was a created being. New Agers say that Yeshua is an avatar or an enlightened messenger. Yeshua, however, answered that question himself by claiming that he was God. All right, you've got to understand that. In the Bible, without a doubt, Yeshua claims to be God. I hope you understand. You know, this morning, I'm going over my message and I'm thinking, you know, for someone who hears me teach for the first time, they probably need a glossary. You know, they need something, you know, that help them understand the terms I'm using. You know, um, <laughs> maybe we should put a glossary up so just to help people out. All right. Look at Matthew 16, 16 and 17. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Yeshua said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter says that Yeshua was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Yeshua agreed with him by saying, You didn't get that on your own. My Father revealed that to you, Peter. So Yeshua claimed to be the unique Son of God. And because of this claim, they wanted to kill Him. You got to see that. They understood what He was saying. They understood He was saying that He was God. John 5.18 For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking the more to kill Him because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So the Jews understood that He's claiming to be God. That's why they wanted to kill Him. They thought it was blasphemy. Seven times in the fourth gospel, Yeshua claimed to be, I am. The very name which Yahweh had revealed Himself to Moses from the burning bush. To the Jews, this was the epitome of blasphemy. For they knew that in doing so, Yeshua is claiming to be God. On another occasion... Yeshua explicitly told the Jews, I and the Father are one. And the Jewish response was, they picked up stones again to stone Him. To which Yeshua responded, Yeshua answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning Me? And again the Jewish response was, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you... Being a man, that's all they viewed Yeshua as, a man. Make yourself equal with God. You make yourself out to be God. So his Jewish contemporaries weren't confused about this. They clearly understood that Yeshua claimed to be God. There's a lot of people today who claim to be Christian that don't understand that fact. And we need to understand, Yeshua is Yahweh. We've been going through this on these first couple lessons in John. He is the second member of the Trinity. Now, as I said, there are some Christians today, or claim to be Christians, who deny this, and they say that Yeshua is only a man. 
He had no existence before Bethlehem, and the Trinity is an invention of men. Matter of fact, there's a preterist site out there that has some of my messages on it that don't have any permission to do that. They deny the Trinity, and they deny the deity of Christ. The link for this message is in the notes. The author of this site says this, Jesus was called God, but that does that mean that Jesus was equal to the Creator Himself? Uh, yeah, it does, okay? Because in verse 3, He claims to be the Creator. So yes, I mean, that's okay. In an attempt to prove this, He quotes this, Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, working wonders? See, we've been saying that Yeshua is Yahweh, so this verse doesn't say that Yahweh is greater than Yeshua. All three members of the Trinity are equal, but he uses verses like this and say, there's no one like Yahweh, so Yeshua can't be like Yahweh. Well, Yeshua is Yahweh. He goes on to say, the first scriptural principle to be considered when approaching the matter of a scriptural point of view is the oneness of God. God is constantly, repeatedly, and emphatically stated to be one, never three. I have no problem with that at all. I absolutely agree. God is one. I don't know of anybody who says there's three gods. There's one God who exists in three persons. There is only one God. We have to understand that. Although it's maybe beyond our mental capacity to understand one God existing in three persons, that is what the Bible teaches. This anti-Trinitarian writer goes on to say, If we regard Jesus Christ as personally existing and possessing all power and wisdom before His scripturally recorded birth as a baby, then we simply deny the actual reality of His birth. I'm not sure how that happens. You know, if if He existed before, He couldn't really have been born. I'm not sure I understand that. But uh, he says, and his increasing in wisdom. See, this writer over and over goes into this idea that he's increased in wisdom so he couldn't be God. He says, we are asked to believe that God changed himself into a powerless and ignorant and helpless creature. Yes, we are. That's called the incarnation. Okay? That's what it's called. See, he goes on and he, he goes after scripture after scripture listing human attributes you know, of Christ and say, see, he, he was limited here. He didn't know this or he thirsted or he hungered. God can't do any of those things. And the problem here is he does not understand the incarnation or the hypostatic union. At the incarnation, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, took on humanity, true humanity. And this joining together has been designated as the hypostatic union. Hypostatic is from the Greek word hypostasis. It means substance or essence. In theological language, it means person. So the doctrine of the hypostatic union is the doctrine of the personal union of the two natures, the divine and the human, of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Listen, Yeshua is unlike any man that ever lived. He is 100% God and He is 100% man. This is where we get the theological term theanthropic. Theos comes from God, anthropos man. He is the God-man. One person with two natures. And you have to understand this person in the uniqueness. And I, and I said this, I think, last week or the week before. 
He was the God man, but he operated when he lived on this earth. He operated under the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> he didn't function in his deity. Okay? The things he did that were miraculous, he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. He laid aside the prerogatives of deity. That's Philippians chapter 2 in the doctrine of the kenosis. He emptied himself. Of what? Of deity? You couldn't do that. He wouldn't be God if he emptied himself of deity. You can't empty you. Deity can't empty himself of deity. But he laid aside the prerogatives of deity and functioned as a man. Now, early in church history, theological controversies resulted, so the church would get together. Uh, you, you can, can you imagine that? Theological controversies? People having problems, you know, on the same, getting on the same page. So the church got together these councils and they hammered out, you know, try to figure out what the Bible was actually saying and make some decree on that. Well, in 8325, the church held the Council of Nicaea. And the purpose of the Council of Nicaea was because the deity of Christ was being attacked. People were saying, he's just a man. He's not God. He's not really God. He's, he wasn't God's son. And so the council came together at Nicaea and the result of the council was homoousios which means of one essence, meaning that Yeshua was of the same essence of the Father. They declared the deity of Yeshua, the Christ. Now, a lot of people go back in history and they say, well, the deity of Christ was the invention of the Council of Nicaea. Uh, hopefully, I showed you in our last two lessons that <coughs> all through the Tanakh, okay, we see the deity of Christ. We see him as the second person showing up in Scripture. Look at 1 Timothy 3.16. And notice this is the KJ, new KJV. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was. Now, <clears throat> there is controversy here because other translations read, He who was manifest in the flesh. And there's a lot of controversy about whether the original Greek word was theos, God, or whether it was hos, who, or ha, which. And they have gotten out microscopes and looked at the manuscripts trying to figure out what was that letter. Was it an O or did it have a line through it? Because if the line through it, then it's theos. And so they're, you know, some seem to have that, some don't. So they're, you know, they're not going to solve this controversy. All right. For many people, the jury's still out on it. Does it really say God was manifest in the flesh or does it say he was manifest in the flesh? But here's the thing we have to understand. Let me show you another verse where there's no theological controversy. There's no manuscript discrepancies in it at all. John 1.14. And we'll get here in a little bit. And the Word, this is the Word from verse 1, the Word that was with God, the Word that was God, the Word became flesh. And He dwelt among us. This is the incarnation. We saw His glory. The glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The second person of the Trinity left heaven. He took on human nature. And this union by the personal, this union is proved by the personal propositions. <clears throat> that is the passages in which the reference to the incarnate Christ is said that God is man and man is God. Now during his incarnation, Christ was both omniscient and ignorant, omnipotent and weak, omnipresent and localized, sovereign and submissive. Look at Acts 20, 28. We don't have time to really deal with the hypostatic union, but I just want to bring up a couple of scriptures. Acts 20, 28. Uh, Paul here is talking to the Ephesian elders. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Shepherd the church of God. All right, he's telling his elders, Shepherd the church of God, which he, 
purchased with his own blood. Who's the which he? It's God. God purchased it with his own blood. Does God have blood? No, God is a spirit. God doesn't have blood. How can he say that then? He's using the attributes from one personality, from the human personality. Christ died. He shed his blood. Man's blood. But it says the church of God. Because Yeshua was God. But the blood is attributed to the human side, not the deity side. Alright? You got that? God doesn't have blood. He's a spirit. John 4.24 Look at Hebrews 2.14 Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. Men have flesh and blood. He became flesh and blood. That through death, He might render powerless Him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and blood. He became a man so that he could die. Now, why was it necessary for Yeshua to have two natures in one person? Why did he have to be the God-man? Why couldn't he be just man? Well, Bancroft writes, The union of two natures in one person is necessary to constitute Jesus Christ a proper mediator between man and God. His twofold nature gives him fellowship with both parties, since it involves... An equal, an equal dignity with God, and at the same time, perfect sympathy with man. Look at what Hebrews 2.17 and 18 say, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren, human, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things <coughs> excuse me, pertaining to God, to make prop- propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted... And that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The twofold nature enables him to present to both God and man the proper terms of reconciliation. Being man, he can make atonement for man. Being God, his atonement has infinite value. If he was only a man, if he died, he could only die for his own sins. But he was the God-man, so he could die for ours. Our anti-Trinitarian author writes this, Jesus was not a co-eternal part of an omnipotent Godhead, but a prophet raised up by God. So he sees him just as a prophet, just as a man. Listen, a man has a man is a sinner. All men are sinners. If he's just a man, then he's got a sin. So when he died, he died for his own sin, nobody else's. All right? This is a real problem. He goes on to say, You see, Jesus did not claim that he was equal with the Father. He did not say that he himself was God. Yes, he does. Over and over and over in the Scriptures. You know, that's what we have to get. This is These are blatantly false statements. No wonder your theology screwed up if you don't understand what the Bible even says. He did not claim he was equal with the Father. Oh, yes, he did claim that. Over and over. That's why they wanted to kill him. We already looked at that. He didn't say he was God. So he says that Yeshua is not God, but Yeshua said he was God. So who are you going to believe? I'm going to stick with the Bible, all right? Yeshua said he came from heaven, all right? See, this man says Christ had no prior existence. He came into being at Bethlehem. Prior to Bethlehem, he didn't exist. He wasn't brown. The Bible doesn't teach that, people. Look at John 6, 50 and 51. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. 
He says, I'm the living bread, and I came from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So he is offering eternal life. Look at John 13.3. Yeshua, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. So he came from God. Yeshua said to the paralytic man, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Kath, would you give me some more, some coffee, please? My throat is. <clears throat> My coffee cup's right there, honey. All right, Yeshua says to the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven you. Can men do that? Can men forgive sins of other men? That's a prerogative of God alone. And his contemporaries understood this. Look what they said. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's right. Only God forgives sins. So that's what he's doing. He's forgiving him because he is God. Only God can do that. Now, in addition, do you remember at the end of John's Gospel when Thomas comes to the Lord? He says, I'm not going to believe unless I see the the nail prints in his hand and I see the the spear mark in his side. I'm not going to believe. And Yeshua shows up. And what did Thomas say? He says, my Lord, thank you. My Lord and my God. And Yeshua said, whoa, 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 Thomas. Wait, you got me all wrong here. I'm not God. I'm I'm just a prophet. Don't call me God. Don't worship me. Get up. Is that what he said? No. Not at all, because he is God. So it was okay for him to say that to him. The writer of Hebrews says, But of the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. To the Son he says this. The Son of God is God. This is what the Tanakh taught. Look at Isaiah 9.6. Familiar Christmas verse, right? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. So we got a son, son being given. Look at the name of the son, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father. So the son is going to be God, he's going to be the eternal father. Here's another Christmas verse, Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, there were different Bethlehem, so he's making sure we understand which one. Bethlehem of Ephratah, too little to be among the clients. The clammed clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This one born in Bethlehem is from eternity. He didn't come into existence at Bethlehem. Yeshua the Son is called the Eternal Father, and He is from eternity. He is Yahweh. Paul calls Yeshua our great God. Titus 2.13 looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Yeshua. Yeshua is God, people. That's what the Bible teaches. He is always the visible member of the Trinity. Whenever you see God, you see Yeshua. Whenever, Whether you go back in the Tanakh and whether it's the Shekinah glory... The glory of the flame over the tabernacle. The glory of the cloud. It's always Christ at the burning bush. It's Christ. Yahweh the Word is Christ. Yahweh the Wisdom. Always Christ. Always the pre-incarnate Christ. Manifest to men. When men saw God, they saw Yeshua. Alright, this is Isaiah chapter 6. 
Let's look at this text. He says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. All right, He is in the throne room of God. He is in the Holy of Holies with God. Lofty and exalted with His train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him. Seraphim are guardian angels. They're throne guardians. They guard the throne of God. They're a class of angel. Each having six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. With two He flew. And one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. So we're in the throne room. The angels are worshiping Yahweh. They said the whole earth is full of His glory. The foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was being filled with smoke. See, we're in the temple of God. Then I said, Woe is me, for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand which he had taken from the altar with the tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Now, let me back up a second. Who will go for us? Who's the us there? That's the divine council. He's in the throne room of God with the divine council, and he's saying, Who's going to go for us? Who's going to represent us? And he says, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell this people. Are you sending them to Israel? Tell this people, that's Israel. Keep on listening, but don't perceive. You understand, Israel's going to hear, but they're not going to get it. Keep on looking, but don't understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. The word render there is the idea of This people, they're not going to understand it. Cause their hearts to be insensitive is the idea. Their ears dull. Their eyes dim. See, they they can't hear. They can't see. Otherwise, here's the alternative. They might see with their eyes. And hear with their ears. Understand with their hearts and return and be healed. They they might come back if they get this. But they're not going to come back. Because God has hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes. All right? Now, clear text from Isaiah Who is it that Isaiah saw on the throne? It's not a trick question. I already told you. Who is he saw on the throne? Who's the only visible member of the Trinity? Yeshua. Okay? The only visible member. So that's who he is seeing. He is seeing Yeshua. How do we know that? John tells us. Let's go to John chapter 12. While you have the light, believe in the light. Who's the light? Yeshua, we're going to see that in a minute in our text. So that you may become sons of light. So believe in the light, you'll become children of light. These things Yeshua spoke, and He went away and hid Himself from them. But though He had performed so many signs before them, listen, the miracles that Yeshua did, He's raising the dead, He's feeding thousands of people, He's healing the sick, He's walking on water. How would you like to be at the funeral at Nain there, when the widow's only son is dead, and they're carrying him out? I love that story because it gives you the heart of God. Why did He heal that man? Because the text says His mother was a widow. He was the only son. That's the only provision this lady has. Okay? And Yeshua cares about widows and orphans. So He stops the funeral and said, Whoa, 
Who's going to take care of this widow? I know. Get up and take care of your mom. And he sits up in the coffin, gets out of the coffin. How would you like to be at that funeral? That would be a funeral to go to, right? These people were there. They saw this kind of stuff. They saw him perform so many signs before them. Watch. Yet they were not believing in him. How do you watch that and say, ah, he's a fake? This is not. This is before all this magic stuff came on that we see today on TV, all right? Now watch. Why weren't they believing? He says, this was to fulfill the word of the prophet Isaiah that we just read. Okay? They were not believing. Which he spoke. Yahweh, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. So they didn't believe Yeshua, but they couldn't believe. Why couldn't they believe? For Isaiah said, and again, he's going to quote the text we read in Isaiah 6. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart. So they would not see with their ears. Yeah, they would not see with their eyes. And perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now the glory he saw is the glory of the light. It's Yeshua. He's quoting from Isaiah and saying, this is Christ. Isaiah saw Yeshua the light. And he calls him Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh is the brightness of God, essence manifest to men. So when you're in that scene in Isaiah 6, in the, in the throne room of God, there sitting on the throne is Yeshua, the Lamb. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes this argument. Since Jesus claimed to be God, he did. Every, you know, see, C.S. Lewis understood that. Anybody who reads the Bible should understand that, okay? You can't wave him off as a good teacher and nothing else. You understand that? He's a great teacher. He claims to be God. You know, he's not, but he's a good teacher. How do you be a good teacher if you claim to be God when you're not God? That's not a good teacher. That's called a false teacher. He says, you can call him a fool, because that would be a teacher who claimed to be God, who wasn't God, right? You can call him a demon. Something's wrong with this man. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. He's not human. You can't say he's a human teacher. Just a great teacher. When a person decides what they believe about Yeshua, they have to choose from one of three possibilities. Either he was a liar because he intentionally deceived people into following him claiming he was God. So either he's a liar, there's another choice, he's a lunatic. He's a paranoid schizophrenic with visions of grandeur. He thinks he's God, he's not, he just doesn't understand that, alright? There's a third option. He is in fact God who he claims to be. He's the King of Kings, he's the Lord of Lords, he is Yahweh the Son. Those are the only options we have. He's a liar, lunatic, or Lord. You've got to make your mind up, okay? He can't be a man walking around claiming to be God. Now, you know which one of those I believe? I believe Yeshua is who he claimed to be. He's Yahweh. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's Christ. He's the Lord of all. Someone who is no more than an apostle doesn't predict and then perform their own resurrection. Okay, you just don't do that. We saw last week in verse 1 that John wrote, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, this last statement couldn't get any clearer. There's four Greek words here. 
It's the clearest decoration of the deity of Yeshua in all Scripture. The Greek verb here, ami, which is translated here as was, means to be or to exist. And it suggests continued existence. So the word always existed as Yahweh. Arthur Pink wrote this. A more emphatic and unequivocal affirmation of the absolute deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is impossible to conceive. In other words, there's no way to say it any clearer than that. There's just not. In verse 1, Eleazar made one of the great Trinitarian statements of the Bible. Uh, Eleazar is who I believe wrote this gospel. His name was John Eleazar. He wasn't the apostle. He was a high priest. He was a priest. And you will pick that up as we go through this gospel and see. But Eleazar, he made one of this. This is a Trinitarian statement here in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. He always existed. He, The Word was with God. In other words, there's some distinction here. Because He's with Him. And then He says, He was Him. He's equal with the Father. But He exists as a separate person within the Godhead of the Trinity. He was the Word. In the next verse, we see that He's the Creator of all things. Verse 3. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. We see in verse 1 and 2 that our Lord Yeshua existed in eternity past. He was with the Father before the world was created. Now we see that He's the one who created the world in the very beginning. He is not a created being, as many of the cults say. He is the Creator. You know, if there's really any question of who this Word is that was with God, you just go down to verse 14 and the Word became flesh. It's the second person of the Trinity who created the universe and all it contains. However, John describes the Word as God's agent. See, the Word did not act independently from the Father. Thus, John presented Yeshua as under the Father's authority, but over every created thing in authority. Now, this is another argument that this anti-Trinitarian man uses. He's saying, Jesus submitted to the Father. Submission is is a form of inferiority. No, it's not. That's stupid. Wives, do you submit to your husband because he's superior to you? Women, I'm asking you an honest question, okay? (laughs) You don't submit to your husband because he's superior to you. You submit to him because that's what God said to do. It's an equal, voluntarily submitting to another equal in function. It has nothing to do with essence or being. We know that men aren't smarter, more capable, anything than women. All right? Just God put us in charge. All right? Take it up with Him. Okay? But, I mean, that's just a a gross misunderstanding that thinks submission is inferiority. All right? But that's, that's what the woman's live movement pushes. You know, if you're, if you're submitting, you're inferior. No. Not at all. All right? Okay, where am I? Now, You read this verse as a Hebrew, and it's really confrontational. It's really disturbing. The Tanakh teaches clearly that God is the creator of all things. Yet here, John is stating boldly that the Word created everything. And he's going to, like I said in verse 14, identify this Word as Christ. Every single thing that exists came into existence through the Word. And we looked at several weeks ago about wisdom. And wisdom is part of creation in in 
Proverbs chapter 8. talks about wisdom creating things. It's the personification of Christ. Now, some of the cult groups teach that Yeshua was the first thing that God created. The Muslims teach this. Surah 3 says, The similitude of Jesus before Allah is that of Adam. He created him from dust, then said to him, Be! And he was. So the Quran says that God created Yeshua. But that fallacy is clearly contradicted by John's careful wording. He says, Apart from him, Christ, nothing came into being that has come into being. There's nothing that exists that Christ didn't create. He can't create himself. Christ was not created. He is the creator. Now, is John alone in this perception, this idea that the word, that Christ is the creator of all things? Is that, is that just a you know, Johannian thing? Well, the answer is clearly no. As we go through the scriptures, we see this over and over and over. Paul taught this. Paul taught Yeshua was the creator. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father. And again, we say, people see one God and say, see, Yeshua is not God. No, he's part of that one God, okay? The Father from all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Yeshua the Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. He created us. We exist because of him. Colossians 1.16, for by Him, Christ, all things were created. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He created everything. All creation is designed for Him, in Him. Creation is preserved by Him. Now the phrase, all things have been created through Him, He's the instrument of creation. He's the agent whereby the universe was created. He is the creator. Finally, creation is designed to be for Him. This is a term of purpose. Creation is designed for the glory of Christ. He's the goal of creation. Christ is glorified in His creation. He not only created all things, but He holds everything that He created together. Colossians 1.17 He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. Not only do all things come into being by Him, but He holds everything together. The word hold together here has the idea of stand together, to be compacted together, to cohere, to be constituted with. And the Greek tense means that they were held together at one point in the past and they remain held together. The thought in Him all things hold together is paralleled in Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 1 through 1-3. He says, God, After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. Through the Son, he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Here again, Yeshua is spoken of as upholding all things by the word of his power. The word upholds is here is the Greek word pharaoh. It means to support, to maintain. Pharaoh is using the Septuagint where Moses says, I'm not able to bear these people alone. Pharaoh. Here, Pharaoh has the idea of the responsibility of government and guidance. It's used in this text in Hebrews in the present tense implying continuous action. What's in view here is divine providence. Everything in the universe is sustained at this moment by Yeshua. Now, can you imagine what would happen if Yeshua relinquished all his sustaining power 
on the laws that govern this earth. Even if he simply stopped maintaining the law of order over atoms, they would implode. They would explode. They'd blow up. Everything is held together by him. That's what the scriptures teach us. We are utterly dependent upon Yeshua for our existence. As God said to Belshazzar, the God in whose hand, whose breath is, and whose are all ways. Or Paul to the Athenians says, in him we live and move and have our being. Everything living is sustained by the Lord Yeshua the Christ. In him was life, he says in verse 4, and the life was the light of men. He sustains everything. He created it and he holds it together so he is life. Life here is Zoe. It's one of John's characteristic concepts. He uses this word 36 times in the gospel. Now, the big debate here is what does he mean by life, Zoe? Is he referring to physical or spiritual life? And I mean, you go read the commentaries ad infinitum, ad nauseum, going back and forth. What is it? Is it light? Is it physical life here? Is it spiritual life here? Well, we just saw in verse 3 that Yeshua is the creator of all things, right? We saw from Colossians that in him all things hold together. So there's no question that our physical life derives from Christ. If Yeshua did not exist, neither would, neither could anything else exist. Life does not exist apart from him. So that I have physical life at this moment is completely dependent on this fact. That life exists in Yeshua. The relationship between my existence and Yeshua is one of absolute dependence. Whether I realize it or not, I am dependent upon Him for every breath I take. That's the same truth Paul taught at Athens when he said, in reference to God in Him, we live, we move, we have our being. In reference to Paul, what he writes in Colossians, in Him all things hold together. Peter called Yeshua the Prince of Life in Acts. He says, but you put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Now, the word prince here means the leader or author or originator. It's used in this sense in Hebrews 2.10 where Yeshua is called the author of our salvation. It's used in Hebrews 12.2 where He called the author and perfecter of our faith. So He originates our salvation, He originates our faith, and He brings it to completion. As the prince or author of life, he originates life, both physical and spiritual. Notice what Yeshua said about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. All right? He is the life. So when Peter says you killed the author of life, that's a shocking indictment to these Jews, okay? To every Jew in that time... Only God was the author of life. He's talking here very clearly about Christ who they put to death and he said, you killed the author of life. So you know what Peter is claiming here for Yeshua? He's saying, Yeshua's God. And you've executed him. That'd be pretty shocking to them again. There is no doubt that Yeshua is the author of physical and spiritual life. Okay, so there's no question about that. But what's he talking about here? You think he's talking about physical? And I don't think it makes all that big a difference. All right, he's the author of both. But here's the thing. The remaining, I said there's 36 uses of Zoe in John. The other 34, the ones that occur outside the prologue, always are used of eternal life. 
Always spiritual life. So it'd be kind of odd if he used these two here in the sense of physical and everything else is spiritual. All right? And when you get to 1 John, which was also written by Eleazar, he uses Zoe 13 times. Always of eternal life. See, I think when Eleazar wants to talk about physical life, he uses the Greek word bios. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here, life here is bios. And John never uses this word in the Gospel. So I think that when John says, in him was life, he's talking about spiritual life. That's what this Gospel is about. Verse 4, he goes on to say, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So this life, this life brought light to men. Look at Psalm 36.9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Now, fountain of life here, the word fountain is the Hebrew makor, and it means source. You are the source of life. How does this verse in Psalms confirm again the deity of Christ? Well, if you go to the psalm and you look at it in context, the psalm is talking about Yahweh. And here, John's talking about Christ because Christ is Yahweh. Again, everywhere you go in the Bible, there's the Trinity. If you know any, any clue what you're looking for. In Matthew 4.16, it says that when Yeshua began His ministry, Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled. The people who were sitting in darkness saw great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, unto them a light dawned. Again, we have life and light. And those who are sitting in death, they saw the light. The light was coming. He says in verse 5, The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Here we're introduced to a major theme in John's Gospel. The opposition of light and darkness. He's going to play on this through the whole rest of the book. The antithesis is a natural one. A widespread in antiquity. Genesis 1 gives considerable emphasis to the account and the creation, so so do the writings of Qumran. Now, Qumran was a community outside of Jerusalem, at actually Qumran, okay? That's where the caves were, that's where they found all the scrolls. This community was like the true believers of the time, okay? They looked at the Pharisees, they looked at the Sadducees as apostates, as heathens, which they were. But this was the true community of God, all right? And they had a lot of writings there, a lot of those writings have been found, all right? One of the major themes of Qum, in the documents of Qumran, uh, they found this scroll called the War Scroll. Properly, it was the War of the Sons of Light with the Sons of Darkness. So this idea of light and darkness was really big at Qumran, and they saw themselves as the Sons of Light. He says, the light shines in the darkness. So Yeshua brought revelation and salvation to God, from God to humanity. He reached out to them with the light. This is the Incarnation. And as the Word of God brought light to the chaos before creation, so now Yeshua brings light to fallen mankind. When He became a man, He's bringing the spiritual light as God brought the physical light in creation. And John anticipates a highly important truth. The light, that is the revelation, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of absolute, objective spiritual truth, is in Him. You know, you're not going to get spiritual light anywhere else except from the Word of God. You're not going to get it from any of the book you read. You're not going to get it from any other source other than the Bible. He's the source, and the Bible contains that only source. 
So you've got to spend time in the Word if you want to get light. John uses a present tense verb here for shines. The light, John says, shines in the darkness. It's present continuous tense. God's light-giving light is shines at this moment, and it will continue to shine. And God is by His very nature a self-revealing God. That's what Yeshua came to do to reveal the Father. He is the light that shines. And He says, And the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, the Greek word here for comprehend is katalambano. The NIV, the New American Standard, and the King James all translate katalambano as comprehend or understand. I don't think that's a good translation. The ESV translates it as overcome. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, there's certainly a difference, wouldn't you say, between comprehending and overcoming? Catalambano is similar to our English word grasp. You know, say, he just didn't grasp that. What do you mean? He didn't understand it, or he actually didn't grab it. You could be using it either way, all right? The darkness didn't grasp the light. The darkness didn't understand the light. I don't know. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. He could have been saying that. A lot of scholars think that John is saying that darkness didn't grasp, didn't understand, didn't accept the light in order to benefit from it. But an equal number of good scholars believe that Catalambano means that darkness didn't overcome, didn't defeat the light. I'd line up with that second group because that is consistent with how the word is used throughout the rest of John. That darkness did not overcome. People... Have you ever felt like darkness was overcoming? I felt that way yesterday. When I heard that Scalia died, I just felt darkness is prevailing over the land. Okay, But I want you to understand that darkness does not overcome the light. The problem in America, my belief, the light is not shining. The church has died out. They put it under a bushel. There's no light shining anymore. And we need to have a revival in this country to turn it back to God where it belongs. W. Hall Harris III writes this. In John's usage, darkness is not normally used of men or a group of men. Rather, it usually signifies the evil environment or sphere in which men find themselves. They love darkness rather than light, John 3.19. Those who follow Jesus do not walk in darkness, John 8.12. They are to walk while they have the light, lest the darkness overtake, overcome them, John 12.35. For John, with his set of symbols and imagery, darkness is not something which seeks to understand or comprehend the light. Darkness is not saying, man, I'd like to figure out this light. How does this thing work? No, not at all. But the forces of evil which seek to overcome or conquer it. He says, but they did not succeed. They're right. They didn't succeed. They will not succeed. All right. The light is going to continue to shine. You know, at times in history, the light gets really, really dim. But there's always a remnant. God has always had a remnant. And no matter how dim it gets, it's always still there. And I think in this country, at one time, it shone pretty bright. And it's getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And that's the church's fault. It's not the country's fault. We're to be setting the standard. We're to be the conscience of the nation, calling Him the holiness and truth. But Christians today look exactly like the world, except we go to church on Sunday. So if there's no difference, how are we being any kind of a light? How are we making any kind of difference? You know, I think Elazar, the writer of this epistle, this gospel, didn't view the world as a stage on which two equal 
and opposite forces we're battling. That's how most Christians see that today. You got Satan, you got God, and they're equal and opposite, and they're battling each other. He was not a philosophical dualist. He viewed Yeshua as superior to the forces of darkness that sought to overcome him but could not. Once the light began to shine, it's not going to be put out, people. Peter put it this way. Writing to believers, writing to Christians, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is all language used of Israel in the Tanakh. He's telling us we are the true Israel of God. A people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Believers, we've been called out of darkness. We are in the light of God. We have the light. We are to take that light and shine it that the world may see. In these first five verses, Eleazar has taught us that the Word Yeshua existed from the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He is the Creator of all things that exist. He alone is life and light. You won't find a clearer or a stronger affirmation of the deity of Christ than in these opening verses of the fourth Gospel. Christ is our Savior. He is Yahweh the Creator. And as we go through this epistle, this Gospel, over and over, He's going to demonstrate who Yeshua is. He's laying it out in the prologue. Remember, these first 18 verses in the prologue, he jams those full of theology, and the rest of the book he's going to lay this out. People, I think, to deny the deity of Christ is foolish. It is against Scripture. I think of someone who's blind who does that, because if your Savior is not God, you don't really have a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts to understand, minds and eyes to see the truth, ears to hear, Lord. May we be Bereans, Father. May we not settle for anything we hear, but when we dig, may we study to seek to understand the truth of your word. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Amen. Amen.